0: Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. I'm sure many of you are at least familiar with the name Chandra Levy. In 2001, before September 11th, 24-year-old Chandra was a graduate student from the University of Southern California, finishing up an internship in Washington, D.C. when she went missing in early May of that year. Her case uncovered a secret affair with a well-known California congressman, which was blasted all over the media. But when her body was discovered in a D.C. metro park about a year later, her case quickly shifted from a missing person to a homicide. In 2010, a man by the name of Ingmar Guandique was eventually convicted and sentenced for Chandra's murder. But five years later in 2015, his conviction was overturned and a new trial for Guandique was ordered. In a twist of fate though, prosecutors ended up dropping all charges against him and Guandique was deported back to his home country of El Salvador in 2017, leaving the question, did Chandra's killer escape a second conviction and return to his home country? Or could a former political leader really be the one responsible for her murder? Or is somebody else altogether responsible? Now, 22 years later, we still have very few answers, and Chandra's murder remains one of DC's most prominent cold cases. This episode is titled, Who Killed Chandra Levy? So without further ado, let's get started. Of 2000, graduate student Chandra Ann Levy finished her master's program at the University of Southern California. All she had left to do was complete an internship, and then she would be walking across that stage in May, earning a master's degree in public administration. So Chandra landed herself an internship in the heart of all internship places, Washington, D.C., specifically working for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. But this type of high profile exclusive opportunity wasn't new to Chandra. Her mother, Susan Levy, said Chandra was an honor student with big aspirations who had previously worked in the governor of California's office as well as with the mayor of Los Angeles. So this new internship was right up Chandra's alley, especially because she dreamed of one day working for the FBI. While in DC, Chandra met California Congressman Gary Condit. Actually, Condit was the Congressman who represented Modesto, California, where Chandra was originally from. Condit, a Democratic representative, was a married father of two, and he was 28 years her senior. But after Chandra and a friend visited his office in D.C. and he gave them a tour of the Capitol, Chandra and Condit allegedly began having an affair. Now, Chandra's parents knew she was seeing someone while she was in D.C., but they had no idea it was Condit. Not until much later, anyway. So let's fast forward to April of 2001. At this point, Chandra had been in Washington since September, and Chandra's parents, Bob and Susan Levy, were ready to see their daughter. In April of 2001, the Levy flew to D.C. for Passover weekend and to celebrate Chandra's 24th birthday a little early. According to ABC News, Chandra and her parents actually spent the weekend in Chesapeake, Maryland, visiting Chandra's aunt, Linda Zamsky. You see, Chandra and her Aunt Linda were very close, and Chandra often spoke to her and confided in her. During this stay on this April weekend, Chandra told her aunt that her boyfriend, whom Linda knew was in his fifties from previous conversations, gave her a bracelet. So Chandra told her aunt that her boyfriend had given her a bracelet. Previously, back in November during the Thanksgiving holiday, Chandra had confided in her aunt and told her she was seeing this mystery boyfriend, an older, handsome gentleman who looked a lot like Harrison Ford, according to Chandra. And eventually she even told her aunt that he was a congressman, though she didn't reveal his name just yet, not during that Thanksgiving holiday. This weekend, though, in April, Chandra let it slip that her boyfriend was Representative Gary Condit from California. So while her Aunt Linda knew exactly who this mystery boyfriend or secret boyfriend was, Chandra's parents still didn't know, at least still not yet. All they knew was that she seemed incredibly happy and content, and they were simply happy that she was happy. While visiting, Chandra also told her parents that when her internship was done in late April, she planned to pack up her DC apartment and move back to California in early May so she could figure out what was next in her aspiring life goals. According to her parents, Chandra was ready to go back home for a while so she could decide if she wanted to move back to DC permanently and, you know, like find a job there, or if she wanted to apply to the FBI, or if she even wanted to look into law school because Chandra had tossed around all those ideas. She just needed a little time after she graduated to, you know, figure it out and make a decision. Regardless of what was next though, Chandra called her landlord on Saturday, April 28th of 2001 and left him two messages on his answering machine saying her job had ended abruptly. Not really sure what that's about because she knew her internship was ending, but then she emailed her landlord as well and let him know that she was planning to move out soon and leave DC either on May 5th or May 6th. Her graduation was scheduled for May 11th back in California, so she needed to be back in California by then. But the explanation she told the landlord in her email, according to ABC News, was, quote, I have no real reason to stay around here, end quote. Meanwhile, it appeared that Chandra began packing up her things and, you know, making arrangements to move. On Sunday, April 29th, she called her Aunt Linda and left her a phone message saying she had some big news to share and that she wanted to talk to her about something important. Although she never told her aunt the specifics about what exactly she wanted to share with her because she never got the opportunity to do so. So then the next day on Monday, April 30th, Chandra canceled her gym membership and she left the gym in DC for the last time around 7 p.m., The very next day, on May 1st, Chandra sent her parents one final email. She then surfed the web on her laptop until about 1pm. But after this, all traces of Chandra were just gone, and nobody in her family or circle of friends would hear from Chandra again. Naturally, Chandra's parents weren't too worried about her at first, you know, like when they first couldn't get a hold of her, because they just thought maybe she just needed some time to herself. I mean, after all, she was a very independent person who kind of marched to the beat of her own drum. But as each day passed with no word at all from Chandra, they became increasingly worried and panicked. By May 6th, when her parents knew she should have been back in California and they still hadn't heard from her, they called the DC Metro Police to report her missing. Chandra's brother, Adam Levy, remembered how he and his parents felt. He said, quote, it was really like a dream. You try to keep up hope, you try to think, okay, she's somewhere being held somewhere against her will, or she's hiding somewhere, and I just tried to keep that in my head as long as I could. As time goes by, the hope fades, end quote. As police in D.C. began working the case, Chandra's parents started looking for answers of their own. Chandra's mom, Susan, started with the cell phone bill since Chandra was still on their plan, and she noticed there was one number Chandra had called quite often. Obviously, Susan dialed the number, and what she discovered somewhat baffled her. It was the number to Representative Gary Condon's D.C. office. Now, why on earth would her daughter be calling this congressman so much? Mind you, a person she did not work for or have any reason to be calling, really. This is when the news of Chandra and Condon's affair came to light. This is when Chandra's parents realized exactly who this secret boyfriend of Chandra's was which obviously Chandra's Aunt Linda was able to confirm as well. Representative Gary Condit was a man making a name for himself in politics back in 2001. He went down in history as being the youngest mayor of Saras, California, and from 1972 to the year 2000, he never lost an election. He had served on the city council, As well as the role of county supervisor, he was a state assemblyman, and now he was a congressman who traveled back and forth quite often from his home in Modesto to his D.C. office. Meanwhile, police ordered a search of Chandra's apartment, and what they found indicated to them that wherever Chandra went, she was planning on coming back. Out of all her belongings, only two things were missing, her keys and a ring. Still inside her apartment, exactly where she left them, included her ID, her credit cards, her checkbook, and even her cell phone. Plus, there were still dirty dishes in her sink and boxes scattered about because she was in the middle of packing to go back to California. Additionally, investigators found Chandra's personal laptop, but as they were going through it, it crashed. According to Oxygen's Mysteries and Scandals, detectives accidentally deleted her search history on her laptop, and they had to wait nearly a month before technicians could restore it. But while they were waiting for her computer to come back, they also checked for any surveillance footage of her potentially coming and going from her apartment building. However, that was kind of a dead end for them. You see, they waited too long to obtain a search warrant for the cameras, and by the time they got access to the footage, it had been recycled over so absolutely no footage or surveillance of Chandra was available to them. They did, however, also find some old messages on Chandra's answering machine, including messages from Condit about meeting up with her because his schedule was clear. Hmm. So, naturally, the investigation focused almost immediately on Gary Condit. When police interviewed him initially, though, they said he was not very helpful and that he denied the affair completely. Brad Garrett, a former FBI agent and now an ABC News consultant, worked Chandra's case and interviewed Condit himself. Garrett said it took a number of interviews for Condit to actually admit he had a sexual relationship with Chandra, but when he finally did admit it to police, he said they would typically see each other after hours, which actually lined up with the timestamps of those calls to his office that Susan Levy found on the phone bill. Garrett told ABC News that Chandra, quote, led a very isolated life once she started this relationship with Gary because the only time she'd really see him were after hours." End quote. And regardless of whether he would admit it or not, it was obvious that they were, in fact, having an affair. Chandra not only confided in her aunt about the relationship with Condent, but she had told a friend as well. ABC News reported that in December of 2000, Chandra emailed a friend and in that email, she said, quote, "...everything else here in DC is going good my man will be coming back here when Congress starts up again. Don't tell, redacted, who I am seeing since she thinks I am dating an FBI agent, end quote. Okay, so that redacted, it doesn't say the friend's name, but it just says in place of it, a friend in Representative Gary Condit's office. So, Basically, she was like telling her friend in the email, like don't tell their friend that works in the office with him who she's seeing because that friend who works in the office thinks she's dating an FBI agent. Anyway, so more people knew about their relationship than, you know, just Chandra's aunt and now obviously Chandra's parents. Plus, get this, investigators were able to confirm that Chandra and Condit did have a sexual relationship because they had also found sperm in a pair of underwear at Chandra's apartment that matched his DNA. Now, while Condit supposedly admitted this affair to investigators, you know, eventually that is, by all accounts, he also fully cooperated with the investigation, which basically allowed police to clear him from being an official suspect. So for starters, he had a strong alibi on the day Chandra went missing on May 1st. Um, He also had a strong alibi for like the days before and after as well. But On that day, that morning of May 1st, his staff picked him up at his condo for work and he spent the afternoon in meetings, one of which was an important meeting with the vice president at the time, Dick Cheney. Later in the day, he went to a doctor's appointment and then he ended his day by having dinner with his wife. Then, Condit allowed police to extensively search his condo in D.C. for possible evidence. Well, I should say he cooperated with them after they obtained a warrant for the search. Anyway, for hours they searched his place up and down, including removing pieces of carpet and chunks of his wall. But when they processed it, all of it came back clean, which means they were no closer to solving her case. However, although Condit admitted the affair to police, he never admitted to it publicly at all. In fact, he denied it with every fiber of his being, in my opinion, because it made him look bad as a politician and tarnished his name, I mean, the obvious reason. Especially because he had been extremely vocal when the scandal between President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky broke years earlier. Apparently, he said the only way the American people could fully trust Clinton again is if he came out and publicly admitted to his actions. Um, okay man, double standard much? Anyway, in an attempt to clear his name once and for all, Condit agreed to do an interview with ABC News anchor Connie Chung in August of 2001. The interview, in which Condit repeatedly denied having anything to do with Chandra's disappearance, was watched by 24 million people. And by the end of it, 24 million people were convinced that either he was hiding something or that he was just simply a piece of scum. It basically made him look guilty in the public eye because he repeatedly refused to answer the question of if he had a sexual relationship with Chandra. He told Connie Chung, quote, "'I've been married for 34 years. I've not been a perfect man and I've made my share of mistakes, but out of respect for my family and out of a specific request from the Levy family, I think it's best that I not get into those details about Chandra Levy, end quote. He went on to tell Connie that he was not leaving his wife and that he was not in love with Chandra Levy. He said, quote, I only knew Chandra Levy for five months. And in that five months period, we never had a discussion about a future, about children, about marriage, end quote. Now, while the interview made him look guilty to the public, it angered Chandra's mom, Susan. She said they never once asked him to not talk about the fair out of respect for them or whatever, and they never once made that specific request. In fact, she said it was the opposite. She wanted him to talk about it and admit it. Susan said, quote, I wasn't sure if he was really all honest. He acted not confident and a little bit shocked. I felt that he was kind of like guilty of something, that he was caught in something, and I don't think it was just necessarily because he was caught in an affair. It was just his way of weaseling out of it. End quote. Still, Brad Garrett, who worked Chandra's case and interviewed Condit several times, said he, personally, does not think Condit was involved in Chandra's disappearance or murder. Garrett said, quote, What would be his motive in harming her? his life was going on. He was still married. He was still a congressman. She was somebody that was passing through his life. Now, did he care for her? I think so, but there was just no indication of why would he do anything to her, end quote. However, Garrett said Condit did call Chandra's apartment after she disappeared and left a message on her answering machine, which to Garrett sounded like Condit was genuinely concerned for her safety and well-being. Garrett said, quote, if you listen to him, it sounds like he's looking for her and cared enough about her that he'd really like to know what happened. End quote. Regardless, Condit wasn't the only one appearing in the media. Chandra's parents also did as many interviews as they could with TV, radio, newspapers, all of it, in hopes of getting their daughter's story out there and finding as many answers and leads as they possibly could. But the national spotlight and media attention on Chandra's case came to a screeching halt when the September 11th terror attacks happened. For example, Chad Condit, Gary Condit's son, explained how media were swarming the outside of his parents' home for weeks and months after Chandra's disappearance, and the day of September 10th was no exception. But the very next day, on September 11th, crickets. No media in sight of Condit's home. Chandra's parents felt it too. On September 11th, they were actually getting ready to go to the airport and fly to Chicago to appear on the Oprah Winfrey show. Then they would go on to New York for another media interview. All of those interviews and flights, however, were canceled. But Chandra's parents understood why the spotlight shifted. Bob Levy said, quote, We were devastated by 9-11 like everybody else was. And that should take, you know, that should be the top thing that's going on in everybody's mind. But they're still looking for Chandra, end quote. And her parents knew that the D.C. police weren't giving up on their daughter's case. About a year later, in May of 2002, Chandra's case began picking up steam again. On May 22nd, a man walking his dog in DC's Rock Creek Park discovered what looked like to him to be a human skull, and he called 911. Investigators quickly began processing the scene where they uncovered other items in addition to human remains, including black jogging pants with knots tied at the bottom of each pant leg, a USC t-shirt, a running shoe, and a Walkman. Ultimately, dental records determined that the remains found belonged to Chandra Levy. By May 28th, the medical examiner was able to determine Chandra's manner of death, but he could not determine the specific cause because of the time that had passed and lack of physical evidence at the scene. According to ABC News, the medical examiner said, quote, The circumstances of her disappearance and her body on recovery are indicative that she died through the acts of another person, which is the definition of a homicidal manner of death. End quote. Also, side note, the knots tied in Chandra's jogging pants also signified foul play to investigators, so they officially switched their investigation from a missing person to a homicide. But now, they needed to figure out one, why she went to Rock Creek Park in the first place because she wasn't known to go there, and two, who in the hell killed her? Now, before I go on, I want to circle back around to Chandra's laptop police found in her apartment. Remember how I said that it crashed and her search history was deleted? Well, back in 2001, when they were able to recover the search history, investigators discovered that Chandra had actually researched a visit to Rock Creek Park earlier on May 1st, the day she went missing. Actually, one source, the National Registry of Exonerations, reported that Chandra had more specifically searched for information on the Pierce Klingel Mansion, which is a historic building located in Rock Creek Park. According to Oxygen's Mysteries and Scandals, police were initially ordered to search within a hundred yards of all roads and trails in the park when Chandra first went missing. However, they didn't find her because communication lines somehow got crossed and police ended up only searching the roads, not the trails. And Chandra's body in 2002 was discovered down a dark, steep embankment just off of one of the trails that they had failed to search the year before. I do want to point out though, that Rock Creek Park is double the size of Central Park in New York City. So there was lots and lots of area to search at the time. So that might help explain a little more how they missed finding her body the first time around. Regardless, police were starting to get more answers and some of the pieces of the puzzle were beginning to fit together. You see, since they recovered a Walkman and running clothes near Chandra's remains, They considered the possibility that maybe she had researched Rock Creek Park on her computer and went out there for a safe place to run. She didn't normally run outdoors. Rather, she would usually elect to run on a treadmill at the gym. But if you remember, Chandra had recently canceled her gym membership in D.C. the day before. So they thought she could have simply wanted to get one last run in before she left Washington, D.C. to go back to California. And that means she could have been attacked in the park while she was running. So let's talk about potential suspects, you know, other than Gary Condit. Two months after her disappearance, so back in July of 2001, an undocumented immigrant by the name of Ingmar Guandique came to police's attention. You see, Guandique had been taken into custody for attacking two women while they were running in Rock Creek Park around the same time that Chandra had vanished. One attack occurred in mid-May of 2001, And the other occurred in early July of 2001. Though both women thankfully survived to tell their stories, Guandique was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2002 for attacking and assaulting the two women at knife point. Now, while Guandique was serving that prison sentence, new detectives took over Chandra Levy's case in 2007. And Guandique soon became their prime suspect. Even though they had zero forensic evidence linking him to Chandra's murder, his MO definitely fit the bill. Like, exactly. Plus, their case against Guandique got much stronger when a man came forward alleging that Guandique had confessed to murdering Chandra while they were both serving time in prison. Guandique's former cellmate, a man by the name of Armando Morales, said Guandique told him that he killed Chandra, but that he did not rape her. Apparently, Guandique allegedly told Morales this because he had heard that fellow inmates are not very nice to men who are rapists and murderers, so he wanted to make sure everyone knew that he had not sexually assaulted or raped Chandra, only that he was responsible for her death. However, according to Morales, Guandique said he didn't mean to kill her. He simply wanted to attack and rob her so he could buy drugs. According to court transcripts, Morales said, quote, he said he hid up in the bushes. He ran up behind her, grabbed her from behind by the neck. He dragged her into the bushes. He said by the time he got her to the bushes that she had stopped struggling. He said he never meant to kill her, end quote. Afterward, Morales said, Guandique informed him that he grabbed Chandra's fanny pack or small pouch and bolted out of there. Apparently though, Guandique told Morales that he had no idea she died until he was already serving time for the attacks against the other two women and then police began questioning him about Chandra. Brad Garrett told ABC News that there was still no forensic evidence whatsoever leaking Guandique to the murder. The only thing they had was a jailhouse confession, which as we know are not necessarily the most credible or reliable confessions on either side. I mean, was it even true, or did this Morales guy just want a deal of some sort? Garrett said there was, quote, no physical evidence, there's no surveillance, there's no DNA, there's nothing, there's no prior relationship. If Mr. Guandike had anything to do with it, it was wrong place, wrong time kind of situation of her and him in the park together at the same time, end quote. While investigators took this into consideration, they ultimately concluded that Morales was telling the truth. That's because of the detail about Guandique taking Chandra's fanny pack. Apparently that detail that Chandra had a fanny pack but it was missing and never recovered was not something the investigation had disclosed publicly. Therefore, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, Guandique's knowledge of the fanny pack supported the accuracy of Morales' account. So, primarily based on Morales' testimony, prosecutors decided to move forward with a trial and take their best shot. And it worked. Although Guandique maintained his innocence in murdering Chandra Levy the whole time, or even meeting her or crossing paths with her, a jury found Guandique guilty of Chandra's murder in 2010. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison. But wait, that's not the end of the story. You see, a few years later in 2015, Guandique's attorney contended that Morales' testimony during the trial was false. They argued that Morales lied on the stand when he claimed that he had not cooperated with law enforcement on other cases in the past. The prosecutors during the 2010 trial had not disclosed that information to the defense and therefore were accused of prosecutorial misconduct. So based on this new evidence or lack of evidence or false evidence or whatever you wanna call it, a judge granted Guandique a new trial, which was scheduled for the following year in 2016. However, before this new trial could begin, additional evidence surfaced in July of 2016, which basically threw a wrench in the prosecution's case against Guandique. And this new information cast even further doubt on Morales' credibility and truthfulness. A woman named Babs Prawler came forward and said Morales had lied in his testimony regarding Guandique's confession. Prawler said that Guandique never admitted anything to Morales in their jail cell and that it was all made up. What? I know, that's what you're thinking. Why? Why would he make it up? Well, let me tell you what happened. According to Prawler, she met Morales at a hotel in Maryland early in the summer of 2016. She told ABC's 2020 that she was a divorced mom at the time and she was between homes so she was staying at the same hotel as Morales was. Her stuff though, most of her belongings, were in a storage unit while she decided what was next for her life. One day, she ran into Morales, and the two struck up a conversation, and he ended up helping her carry her dog, Buddy, into the hotel. Morales soon began joining Prawler and Buddy on walks, and they got to know each other. She explained that he was very honest and forthcoming with her. He told her he had just been released from prison after spending more than 20 years behind bars for gang-related and drug-related charges. Prowler said, quote, He gave me no reason to be scared. He's carrying my dog into a hotel very gently, and he has all this affection and kindness. He felt sorry for whatever he had done. He convinced me that he was a completely changed man. I totally believed everything he told me, end quote. But Prawler changed her mind about Morales after she went out of town on a trip to Ocean City, Maryland. She said Morales insisted on taking care of her dog, Buddy, and watching her things while she was away. Prawler said, quote, While I'm in Ocean City, he texts me pictures of himself and Buddy, selfies, how they're walking and they're having a good time, and then suddenly I get a text from him and the text has a business card of mine. I've never given him my business card. I've never given him my last name. I'm thinking, that's odd. The only place I have business cards are in my locked file folder. At this point, I'm nervous. He betrayed my trust, end quote. When she returned from the trip, Prawler was much more cautious of Morales, especially because he threatened to physically harm her ex-husband. So she started recording their conversations, just in case. It didn't take long for Morales to admit to her that he had lied in court and made up the story about Guandique confessing to him. According to Prawler, Morales said, quote, The prosecutors wanted me to lie. They knew they had the right guy. They just needed somebody to say it, end quote. So, Prawler went to police and prosecutors with the information and recordings she had. She alleged that his motive for lying in the 2010 trial was to be moved to another prison. Prawler said, quote, he had a mentor who had testified in a case and gotten a reduced sentence. That mentor kind of put that thought in his mind. If you have any information in a case, then you can get better conditions in prison or get a reduced sentence, end quote. According to 2020, Prawler turned over seven hours of the recordings to the prosecution, and then 2020 obtained those same seven hours of recordings as well. However, that one line, y'all, that one piece of information they needed where Morales admitted to lying on the stand was not part of the recordings. Either way, though, prosecutors knew they could no longer prove that Guandique was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt because of the recordings and now Morales' tarnished credibility. So on July 28, 2016, at the request of the prosecution, a judge dismissed the charges against Guandique. In May of 2017, Ingmar Guandique was deported back to his home country of El Salvador after serving his sentence for the two assaults that he was convicted of. And it was definitely a good thing he was shipped out of here because according to USA Today, Guandique was a documented member of the MS-13 gang and he committed numerous violent crimes since he first entered the U.S. illegally. As for Gary Condit, he continues to not only maintain his innocence in harming or murdering Chandra, but also, still, to this day, he publicly denies that the affair between him and Chandra ever happened. Even in 2016, he appeared on the Dr. Phil show and adamantly denied it. I mean, even good old Dr. Phil with his backward, southern boy antics couldn't get the truth out of Condit. On the show, Condit said, quote, Dr. Phil, I haven't answered that question publicly for 15 years and I'm not going to change my position or my view on that today or probably any time in the future. Not only is it not relevant, I think people are entitled to some level of privacy. We have lost our common decency in this country and I have decided to draw the line there, end quote. But when Dr. Phil pressed him a little harder on the question of his and Chandra's affair, Condit flat out said, quote, I did not have a romantic involvement with her. I was not involved in her disappearance in any way." Regardless, Condit wasn't completely unscathed in the aftermath of everything. When it was all said and done, his political career was trashed, and in 2002, he lost his bid for re-election. Condit has not been involved in politics in over 20 years. Meanwhile, Chandra's parents are devastated that they are back to square one and their daughter's case has gone cold once again. Susan Levy said, quote, There's never a day that I don't think about her. Our future, grandkids, and time that we would have spent together. We have moments of pleasure doing things together as a family, but deep down the hurt is there. The toll it has taken upon Adam and Bob and myself is very, very hard. It's painful, and you don't heal. Closure is is a very bad word. There's no such thing. We thought we had the truth with Guandique. Now I feel like I'm back to not knowing. If he didn't do it, then who did kill my daughter? End quote. So I want to know what y'all think. Was Ingmar Guandique responsible for Chandra's murder? Or could Gary Condit have had more to do with it than we know? Or was it someone completely different? There are still so many questions left unanswered. I personally think the evidence, with what little there is, points to Guandique. It was just unfortunate how the justice system played out in this case. But still i want to know what y'all think okay y'all that officially brings us to the end of chronicle 51. be sure to check out my social media where i always post photos associated with each case and episode you can now find me at campus crime chronicles on both facebook and instagram or you can follow my personal account on instagram at nicole Kalyn. that's k-a-l-y-n-n and be sure to check out my tiktok for some additional campus crime stories I'm working on, I, I keep saying this all the time. I am working on getting more stories up there, but if you haven't checked out my TikTok, go check it out because there are definitely several stories up there. Um, okay. Well, that is all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by G.R.E. Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.